You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Could you please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Christians, the church in Thessalonica. Uh, If you're not sure where that is, God has given you a table of contents. Don't be ashamed to use it or just flip around until you get there. That's the other way to do it. As well. So let's begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ." But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we ask this morning as we consider it, as we uh, go through these verses, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand these things. And Lord, help us not just remain at the place of understanding. Help us respond to these things. Lord, help us to put them into action in our lives. We might not just be hearers of the word, but that we might be doers also. Lord, would you use this time and these words to build us up in our most holy faith and to send us out in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the word imitation is usually used in a negative sense, right? It tends to bring up negative uh, images in our mind or negative connotations. For example, imitation cheese is not as good as actual cheese. Uh, An imitation iPhone is never as good as an actual iPhone. Uh, When I was growing up, one of the biggest insults you could call somebody was to call them a poser, right? Which meant that they were a fake, they were a fraud, they were a phony, they were not original, they were just copying It meant all of those things. But the truth is, if we really get down to it, as much as we like to think that we're original, all of us are imitators. Everybody's imitating something and somebody. As original as I might think I am, the way that I dress, the way that I talk, the way that you live, right? As as original as we think we are, uh, it's always the result of us learning and observing and imitating. We're shaped by our communities and by our surroundings, whether we like it or not. See, imitation is how all of us learn from the time that we're small children uh, as we grow up. And so when it comes to imitating people, Imitation can be a very good thing or a very bad thing depending on who you are imitating and what you're imitating. On the one hand, we we often say that imitation is the highest form of flattery. 
Uh, you imitate people who you look up to because you want to be like them. You, you respect them or you like something about them, so you imitate it and you model yourself after them. And, and since everybody imitates, whether we like it or not, we all imitate on some level, the, the big question is this. Who are you imitating and what are you imitating? In the book of Acts, we read the story of the early days of Christianity, right after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, and he sent out his disciples into the world to spread the news about what he had done. And it tells us the amazing story there in the book of Acts of how Christianity spread and flourished throughout the world. And one of the things it tells us is that originally the followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. They were actually, they called themselves the way or followers of the way. And maybe that was because Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe it was because it implied that they were walking in the way of Jesus, following a certain path. But we read that it was in the city of Antioch that people first began calling the Christian believers Christians. And the word Christian, it meant, and originally it meant little Christ or imitation Jesus, right? It was originally meant as an insult. It was a form of mockery, right? Where they would make fun of people who were following Jesus. They would insinuate that they were kind of playing Jesus or, you know, playing pretend and acting like Jesus. But when these early Christians heard that insult, they weren't offended by it. They were flattered. They were like, really? You would look at us and associate us with Jesus? That is the highest praise we could ever receive. They were like, that's exactly who we are. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to copy Jesus and just imitate him. And sure, of course, we're not as good at it as he is. Those are big shoes to fill. But if we could even just be a fraction of what he is, we would be over the moon. And so these Christians in Antioch, they embraced this insult, they owned it, and they said that's exactly who we are, imitators of Jesus. And as Christianity spread, missionaries began to take the good news about Jesus to different parts of the world, and this was a big part of what they did and what they taught. They would come in and they would tell the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, and then they would begin teaching the, the believers how to imitate Jesus by living out the same love, the same forgiveness, the same redemptive work that Jesus had done in their lives. Essentially, what it means to be a disciple is imitation. Imitation is at the heart of discipleship. Not only is imitation the highest form of flattery, but you could even say that imitation is the sincerest form of discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus is to imitate Jesus in your actions, in your attitudes, in your priorities. And so how do we do that? Well, in this chapter, in the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, there are three things that we're going to see that relate to imitation and discipleship. And here's what those three, three things are. Number one, we've been entrusted with the gospel. So entrusted with the gospel. Number two, we're going to see a life worth imitating, what that looks like, what those things are that we should imitate. And finally, we're going to see motivation for imitation, the motivation for imitation. So let's talk about this first point, entrusted with the gospel. Let me give you a little bit of context to set this up because as we've been studying through this book, right, we're picking up, it's like playing golf, right? We just kind of pick up where we left off last week. So, so some context will help. Last Sunday, we began this new series in which we're studying verse by verse through Paul's letters, his two letters to the Christians in the city of 
Thessalonica. Paul had come to this city on his second missionary journey. And Thessalonica was one of the most important cities of the world at that time. It sat on a very important trade route, the Via Ignatia. And so when they came here, they intended, because this is such an important key uh, city strategically, they intended that they were going to stay here for a long time. And initially, things went really well. A church was formed, and people were coming and learning about Jesus. And things continued to go well until they didn't, which was about three weeks to a month after they arrived. They'd been there for just a little under a month, and we know that a mob was formed. Some angry people came, and they tried to flush Paul out of this house that he was staying in, and they wanted to kill him and his missionary team. Uh, they accused them of being revolutionaries who had come to, quote, turn this world upside down, right, just as they had in other places. And as a result of this angry mob, Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they had to get kind of snuck out the back door. You know, you, you imagine like in the movies where they come in and they, you know, they, they shoot the bed and then you open it up and there's just a dummy inside or some pillows, right? That's what it was like. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they sneak out the back door. They get smuggled out of town. They have to flee town in the middle of the night. And it wasn't until several months later that they were able to get a report on how the Thessalonian Christians were doing, how this church was holding up were they standing strong underneath the persecution they were facing or were they giving in had they given up the faith they didn't know and so they got this report finally and the report came back that the Christians in Thessalonica weren't just surviving but they were thriving they were growing they were even sharing their faith with others it was a great glowing report and so Paul writes these two letters to the church in Thessalonica in response to this report that he gets about how they're doing and what's going on and what they're facing and what questions they still have that need to be uh, that he needs to instruct them about when it comes to doctrine and where they need encouragement in the faith but another reason why Paul wrote this letter particularly the section that we read today was to defend himself now why would Paul need to defend himself and his ministry well because we see that clearly there were people making slanderous accusations uh, against him. People in the city of Thessalonica were attacking him. He had been attacked many times physically, but this time he was being attacked verbally. His character was being attacked. Uh, and not by people in the church, mind you. This was not by people in the church. This was by people outside of the church, people in town. You see, since Paul wasn't around anymore and they couldn't attack him physically, they had uh, resorted to attacking him with their words and they ran a campaign, of, like a smear campaign against him, right? To slander his name and, and drag his name through the mud. Why? Because they hoped to discredit him because they thought if they could discredit Paul, then that would discredit the message that he preached and this whole Christianity thing would come to nothing in their city. And you can tell the kinds of things that people must have been saying about Paul based on the things that he defends himself of against, right? He's responding to the accusations that people were making against him. And basically what they come down to is three things, sex, money, and power, as, as they always do, right? So they accused Paul in these areas, sex, money, and power. First of all, they said, Paul, that guy's a perv. He's pervy Paul, right? He's, that's why he's out there doing this church stuff, trying to convert people. People, right? He just wants you to join his church, and then once you're in, who knows what happens behind those closed doors? This was actually a common, did you know this? This was actually a common uh, accusation that people made in the early days of Christianity about Christianity. There was some kind of weird sex cult.
cult and the behind closed doors once they got you in. You, you know, who knows what was going on there because they're always talking about love. And, they, and, you know, as an illicit religion, they had to have meetings behind closed doors. And so they said, you know, Paul, he's, he's a perv. He's like some kind of crazy cult leader who draws you in. Next thing you know, he makes everybody sleep with him. And uh, he's probably got kids all over the place in every town that he goes to. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, he says, you guys know that accusation isn't true. You know that I didn't come, he says, in immorality or with motives of impurity. Another thing they accused Paul of, they accused him of just being in it for the money. Right, that was another uh, thing that he was some kind of mercenary, right? He's just in this to fleece the flock and get the money from the people. You know, it's kind of the classic thing that you say about preachers. Sometimes I, I hear people say things like this. They say, oh, religion, such a big business. If you want to get rich, then start a church. And let me, let me just uh, say, I, I, I have started a couple churches, and there's got to be an easier way to get rich than starting churches. Let me tell you, it's, it's got to be a more effective way to do it. Now, I understand there are some exceptions to this, but in general, let me just tell you, people involved in church work, they're not getting rich anytime fast. They're doing it for a whole different reason. But people were saying this about Paul, that he was only in this church business for the money. And Paul says, look, you guys know that's not true. You know that I never took a dime from you. Later on, he's going to say, I worked my fingers to the bone. I worked night and day so that I could support myself when I was among you. So what, is, what are these accusations of me being in it for the money? And the other thing they accused Paul of was that he was all about power. Right? That he was some kind of dictator or tyrant who just wanted to control people and manipulate them. They said Paul lies. He has ulterior motives. He's got a police record so you can't trust him. He's a shady character. He's a dodgy guy. And so one of the things that Paul wants to do in this letter is to speak to these accusations and clear up any confusion that they might have caused. And the way that he does that is by reminding the Thessalonians of the way that he actually lived when, and acted when he was among them. Now the reason why Paul is so eager to defend himself is not because he's insecure or thin-skinned, right? Like he can't handle criticism. No, the reason why Paul is so eager to defend himself is because he understands that these attempts to discredit him are not just attempts to discredit him as a person. They are attempts to discredit the gospel message that he had preached among the Thessalonians and that these Christians were following. See, this is what's called an ad hominem argument. Ad hominem argument is this. It's when instead of debating an actual topic and dealing with the ideas at hand, what you do is you sidestep the issue and you change the subject and you make it personal. You make it a personal attack against somebody who holds those views because you think if I can discredit that person, then that will discredit the things that they believe. Now, that's a very, this is a very weak and dishonest way to debate an issue, but it's also very common. We see this a lot in politics, right? We see this very often with politics, right? The politicians will resort to these kind of ad hominem arguments in which personal attacks are made, and they're trying to discredit the individual rather than dealing with their ideas or what they stand for. But this is also something that people do a lot in regard to Christianity and the Bible. They'll point out Christian leaders who have failed or fallen. They'll point out things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and and they'll say, see, that's why I can't believe in Christianity. That's why I won't be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites and a lot of bad things have been done throughout history under the banner of Christianity. 
And yet, uh, even if all those things are true and wrong, which of course we as Christians also agree that those things are wrong, um, what that person is doing is they're, they're sidestepping the real issue. They're not dealing with the issue. They're avoiding having to deal with the actual claims that Christianity makes that are either true or they aren't. So this kind of ad hominem argument is, is a weak, it's a dishonest way to debate an issue, but it's also very effective when it comes to swaying public opinion. And that's what people were trying to do in Thessalonica. And so Paul is eager to defend himself, not because he's so offended by these people saying these things about him, but because he doesn't want these people to succeed in discrediting the gospel by saying these things about him. Now this is because Paul understood, as he says in verse 4, he understood that he had been entrusted with something. He had been entrusted by God with the message of the gospel. What an incredible honor to be entrusted by God with this message, this treasure. But it's also an incredible calling, an incredible responsibility to carry the gospel to the world, to represent the gospel in the world. See, the gospel is the good news about what God has done for you in order to save you because he loves you. He sent Jesus to live and to die and to defeat sin and death in order to remove the barriers that stood between you and God so you can be forgiven of your sins and have a relationship with God and life everlasting. And Paul had been entrusted with this message, this incredible treasure of the gospel. It had been placed in his care for this time in this place. And so when Paul heard that these people in Thessalonica were saying these things about him, he wanted to write immediately and say, hey, I need to refute these claims. Why? Because I do not want these people to succeed in bringing the gospel into question or bringing the gospel into disrepute. The gospel message, you could think of it like a baton in a relay race. You ever watched or participated in a relay race, right? Somebody hands off the baton, somebody else takes the baton, they run with it, and when their run is done, they hand it off to the next person who takes it and runs with it. And in a way, every generation since Jesus has been handed this baton of the gospel and charged with taking it and running with it and being faithful with it. And guys, let me just remind you, now is our turn. That baton has been handed to us, right? It's been given to us. And what a great privilege that is, but also what a great calling and what a great responsibility. Just like Paul, we have been entrusted with the gospel for this time and for this place. And the question is, what will we do with it? How will we steward it well? Will we be faithful to share it, to spread it? Will we represent it well? See, here's the deal. Paul cared about his reputation because he knew that his reputation could either help or hurt the cause of the gospel. Let me say that again. Paul cared about his reputation because he knew that his reputation could either hurt or help the cause of the gospel. And guys, do you know that that's true of you as well? Do you know that your reputation matters? Why? Because you have been entrusted. If you're a believer, you've been entrusted with the gospel. And therefore, your reputation, your character, your integrity, or lack thereof, can either help or hinder this cause, this mission of the gospel. So Paul the Apostle, he actually did something which might be considered audacious. You know what he did? He, he came and he said, don't, he didn't just say, follow Jesus and imitate Jesus. He took it one step further and he said, you know what? Yes, follow Jesus, but you know what else? 
imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, Paul put himself forward as a role model that people could follow. Paul didn't just say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. No, he said, yes, look at Jesus and you can also look at my life. Why? Because the power of Jesus is at work in my life. It is real in my life. Paul was comfortable with the idea of other people following his example. And that's a very worthy goal for any Christian to have. What was the example that Paul lived out? Well, we're going to look at that next, our next point. But before we move on, let me just close out this thought by saying this. Friends, the gospel is for you, but it's not only for you. Right? The gospel is for you, but it's not only for you. Jesus died for you, but he didn't die only for you. Well, what it means to be a Christian, it means to be a person who is both called in and called out. Called in and called out. To be a Christian means that God has called you in to a relationship with him. And whenever God calls you in, he also calls you out. Right? It means that you're also called out by God to be part of his mission in the world. God calls us in, but he never calls us in without also calling us out. So to be a Christian is to be somebody who has been entrusted with the gospel, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others. So if we have been entrusted with the gospel, which we have, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? How will the knowledge of that calling change the way that we live? That's the question. Now let's talk about a life worth imitating. Here in these verses, Paul speaks about three areas of his life that are worthy of imitation. Three areas of his life that are worthy of imitation. Here's what those areas are. Number one, his priorities. Number two, his actions. And number three, his motives. So his priorities, his actions, and his motives. Let's talk about his priorities. Paul understood that his life was not primarily about himself but it was about God. Life is not primarily about me. It's about God. That's the priority that Paul had. Paul says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. The NIRV translation puts it this way. Our coming to you was not a failure. Another translation says this. When we came to you, we were not wasting our time. Now why would Paul say that? Well, obviously, there were some people who would look at Paul's time in Thessalonica, his ministry there, and they would say, that was a failure, that was in vain, that was a waste of time. Why? Well, because Paul clearly and obviously intended to stay in Thessalonica a lot longer than he did. He had to leave prematurely. He clearly intended to stay there more than just three weekends, right? But things did not go the way that Paul planned. And anytime something in your life doesn't go the way you planned, it can feel like a failure. It can feel as if all of your hard work was in vain. That everything you poured your time and energy and heart into was just a waste of time. But Paul says, no, no way. No way. It was not a waste of time. It was not a failure. It was not in vain. Sure, things did not go the way that I planned or hoped they would, but you need to understand my priorities, Paul says. You need to understand my fundamental priority in life is not to live for myself and to fulfill my dreams and my plans. My priority in life is to live my life for God and to fulfill his plans for my life. Notice what he says in verse 2. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi and been, uh, 
as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul's like, hey, look, if I wanted a quiet job, like I'd get a job in a cubicle like doing data entry, right? Then I'd have a quiet life. But obviously I didn't sign up for that. If I wanted to be popular, then I'd get a job selling ice cream. But clearly that's not why I'm doing this, right? Obviously there's something driving Paul that would cause him to go from town to town, city to city, everywhere he goes getting beat up, then going to the next city and getting beat up there. It's like that old cartoon, you know, Pinky and the Brain, right? Every day, right? The one mouse, Pinky, asks the brain, he says, what are we going to do today, brain? And brain says, the same thing we do every day. We're going to try to take over the world. But with Paul and Timothy and Silas, it was different. It was like, what are we going to do today? Well, the same thing we do every day. Preach the gospel, and then we'll get beat up. And then when they finally chase us out of town, we'll go to the next town, and then we'll preach the gospel there, and then those guys will beat us up, right? right? The, the people who had opposed Paul, they clearly thought that they had succeeded in making his time in Thessalonica a failure, and Paul says, no way. It wasn't a failure. Look at verse 4. He said, our goal is not to please man, but to please God. See, what Paul's saying is our priority. My priority is one thing, to be faithful to do what God has called me to do. All the rest of the stuff, that's up to him. My priority is to be faithful to do what he's called me to do. Paul understood that life is not primarily about himself, but about God. Paul realized that his life belonged to God, both by virtue of his creation and by virtue of his redemption. In other words, he understood that he had been made for God and he had been saved for God, right? Paul understood that God was not uh, in the world to serve his purposes. He was in the world to serve God's purposes and we we oftentimes get that mixed up in our minds and it really can cause disastrous things in our lives right sometimes we think about God as if he's our waiter or our servant or our assistant right somebody whose job it is to help us accomplish our plans and goals in life that God exists to make sure that we prosper and we're fulfilled and we get all the stuff that we want and we get things backwards when we do that See, Paul knew differently. Paul knew that God was not his co-pilot. He understood that God was his captain. Paul understood that he existed to serve God. God did not exist to serve him. And again, when we get mixed up about that, it causes problems in our lives. I, I challenge you to ask yourself this question. You ready? Here's the question. Do you worship God primarily because you find him useful? Or do you worship God because you find him beautiful? Do you look at God and see him as useful to you or do you look at God and worship him because you find him beautiful to you? There's a really big difference uh, depending on how you uh, answer that question. It will affect the way that you live in a major way. You see, if you pursue God only because you consider him useful to you, then what about when he isn't useful to you, right? What are you gonna do when your plans differ from God's plans? See, when that happens, a lot of times uh, people will react by feeling as if God has betrayed them or let them down or, or God didn't hold up his end of the bargain because they didn't get what they wanted. And sometimes people will respond to that and they'll say, God, if you won't give me what I want, then what do I need you for anyway, right? Like, like I don't need you in my life anyway then if you're not going to give me what I want. And they get mad at God. Right? The, the, only, uh, the other thing that happens when we put ourselves in the center of the universe, uh, in our own universe, right? Not only do we treat God in this way as if he exists to serve us, but we inevitably will treat other people that way. We'll treat other people as if they exist to serve us. We'll use them. Rather than serving them for their own good, we'll use them for our good. 
And if you do that, let me just tell you this, if you do that, if you put yourself in the center of your own universe, if you make your life so much about yourself, you know what will happen? You will choke on yourself. You will suffocate on yourself. Your life will shrink and become very small and increasingly insignificant. Because here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, you were made by God and you were made for God. And it's only when you get that priority straight that he doesn't exist for you, but your, your life, you exist for him. It's then that you will find joy and peace, that joy and peace in life that you desire. See, the irony of the self-centered life is that the more that you focus on yourself, the more you focus on what do I need to be happy, the more miserable you will be. See, you, we, we all tend to think that it'll work opposite, right? We, we have all these platitudes and sayings like, hey, what I need in order to be happy is I need other people to take care of me. What I need in order to be happy is to focus more on myself and my needs. Guys, that is a surefire recipe for misery and solitude. Proverbs 11, verse 25, I love what it says. It says, a generous person will prosper and whoever refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus is praying over his disciples at the end of the Last Supper before he goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that prayer, he says this. He says, Father, I have so much joy. You've given me a mission, and I have accomplished that mission, and I have so much joy. And he said, you know, I want my disciples to also have my joy fulfilled in them. And then what he says is incredible. He says, so... In order that they might have my joy, I'm giving them my mission. The same mission you sent me on, now I send them. In other words, because I want them to have joy, I am giving them a mission, my mission. What Jesus is saying is that the secret to true and lasting joy is not living a comfortable, pampered life. No, the key to joy is having a mission. The key to joy is pouring your life out for something that is bigger than yourself, something that really matters beyond yourself. The key to joy is fulfilling God's purpose for your life. See, the first thing that, God, that Paul tells us about his life that he wants us to imitate is his priorities. He tells us that he exists for God, not the other way around. And having that priority shapes the way he defines his goals. It shapes the way he thinks about his circumstances, especially when things don't go according to plan. The next thing Paul talks about are his actions. In verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. A nursing mother has to be one of the most selfless creatures in the entire world, right? They serve that baby day and night, uh, getting up in the middle of the night. The only thing that baby does, gives them in return is dirty diapers, and they keep on serving, right? And Paul is saying, you guys remember our actions? You know what we were like? We were like a nursing mother. We were selfless. We gave and gave and gave and asked nothing in return. He says in verse 8, we loved you so much, we didn't just give you the gospel, we gave you our very Selves. We gave you our lives. Verse 9, he says, you remember, brothers, our labor. You remember our toil. We work night and day so we might not be a burden to you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, Paul worked while he was there in Thessalonica, probably in his trade as a tent maker. So any accusations that Paul was uh, doing this to get rich, they were unfounded. They were ridiculous. He says in verse 10, he says, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was among you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you 
to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's what a good father does. Exhorts, encourages, charges their children to walk in a manner worthy of God. Again, Paul is speaking about his actions. He's talking about what he did among them. Paul served them physically, spiritually, and emotionally. When it comes to the topic of actions, it's been said, and interestingly so, it's been said this. Your actions are the true measure of who you really are. Your actions are the true measure of who you really are. Now why? Well, here's why. Because according to experts, most of us have a distorted view of ourselves. We don't see ourselves clearly. And the reason we don't see ourselves clearly is because our brains tend to count our intentions as if they have actually happened when in fact they haven't. So when we think of ourselves, our self-image is not just built upon our actions but upon uh, our intentions, even if we haven't followed through on those intentions. And, and that leads to us having an unrealistic view of the kinds of people we actually are. So for example, you might say, I'm a very generous person, or I'm a very adventurous person. But for many people who, who might feel that way, many of them maybe have not actually done any adventurous things or generous things. Uh, but in their minds, they begin to think of themselves as that type of person, even though they haven't actually done those things. It's one of the ways that we uh, deceive ourselves, and it happens in both positive ways and in negative ways. But what experts say is that the best way to not deceive ourselves is to measure ourselves by what we do, not just by what we think about doing. Because here's the thing, if you have a good intention, but you don't act on that intention, then maybe you never really intended to do it at all. Maybe you did, but maybe you didn't. And Paul is saying, look, my love for you, it wasn't hypothetical. I didn't just think about doing these things. It was actual. It manifested itself in actual things that I actually did. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John tells us, Little children, let us not love in talk or in word, or in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the same idea. He's saying, let us not just talk about loving. Let us not just talk about being loving, but let us actually do these things in real actions. And that brings us to the, the third point, which is his motives. The third thing he wanted to be imitated was his motives. Paul understood that it's not just what you do that matters to God, but also why you do what you do that also matters to God. And it's possible to do good things even from a twisted motive. You know, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he was kind of a downer in this area, right? Because he believed that nobody ever does anything from completely pure motives. He would say, anytime you do anything, the reason you do it is never completely pure, right? Either you're trying to give yourself an edge over somebody else or, or put them in your debt by doing something for you, or maybe you're just doing it to make yourself feel good, like to make yourself feel like you're a good person. Now the people in Thessalonica were obviously questioning Paul's motives. And they're saying there must be some real reason he's doing this. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. In verse 3, he says, our, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 5, he says, we weren't motivated by greed. Verse 6, he says, we didn't do it for glory or popularity. So what was Paul's motivation? Well, if you read this section, Paul makes it very clear that the reason he went there, his motivation for doing these things was two things. Love for God and love for people. Love for God and love for people. The love of God, right, is so powerful 
that it changes our motivations. Right? In 1 John, we're told that we love because God first loved us. We love because he first loved us. The love of God is so powerful that it changes our, transforms our motivations. See, whereas every other religion in the world says this, it says, if you do these things, if you obey, then God will love you and accept you. The message of the gospel is completely and utterly different. The gospel message says this, God loves you and he accepts you in Christ. He has already done these things for you. Therefore, respond by obeying and doing these things. See, it's a completely backwards way. It's completely upside down. It's a completely different form of motivation. See, religion, uh, like a lot of our motivation, right, uh, traditional religion tends to tap into these dark motives that Nietzsche talked about. Pride, fear, and shame. Pride, fear, and shame. But the gospel gives us a whole new motivation. See, in the gospel, we're not motivated by pride. When you motivate by pride, it's when you tell people, hey, you're better than this, or hey, you're better than those people who do these kinds of things. But in the gospel, we're not motivated by any sense of superiority over other people. Just the opposite. The gospel humbles us. It tells us that we're sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, we have no right to look down on anybody else or consider our ourselves better than them. So the gospel doesn't motivate with pride. It also doesn't motivate with fear because it tells us that perfect love, the love of God that he has towards us, casts out all fear. The, the fear of judgment has been removed in Jesus because he took our judgment that we deserve so that we could receive God's mercy. And the gospel doesn't motivate with shame either because our guilt, our shame has been removed. We've received a new identity free of guilt and shame. So how does the gospel motivate us? It motivates us through love. And there is no more powerful motivator in the world than love. People do radical, crazy things for love, right? Things that they would never do out of obligation. They would never do out of fear. Love causes people to cross oceans and run into burning buildings and sacrifice their lives willingly and, and freely because they want to. See, what the people of Thessalonica couldn't understand, the people who were outside of the church, they could not understand why Paul would do these things he did. All this sacrifice, all this struggle, what could cause someone to want to do all of this? And the answer is love. Paul wanted the Thessalonian Christians to know this and to imitate it. That their motivation in life, in everything they do, would not be pride or fear or shame. That it would be love for God and love for other people because we understand and we embrace what Jesus did for us. And when we do that, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our third and final point. Verse 12, Paul says this, We urged you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The motivation for imitation is this, that Jesus has called us into his kingdom and into his glory. In Christ, we have been rescued and redeemed, forgiven and cleansed, and for the ages to come, we will experience his glory and joy and perfection forever. Everything that is wrong will be turned upside down and made right forever. And the question is, how can we walk, how can we live in a manner that is worthy of a God who would do that for us? And there's only one answer, and that is this, by giving all that we are to him who gave all that he is for us. May we do that today. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. We thank you for this great truth. Lord, we see that as Paul preached it, he also lived it out. He lived his life as a response to it. 
Lord, may that be true of us as well. May we not only understand and comprehend the gospel, Lord, may it sink down deep into our hearts and our minds. May it change our motivations. Lord, may we not be motivated by pride or shame or fear, but by the true love of God that you have towards us that has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who does not yet know you, who hasn't stepped across that line and put down their yes and said, yes, I, I will walk with Jesus. I'll give him my life. Lord, I pray for anybody who's here today who does not know that love in that way that we have experienced it uh, by putting our faith and our trust in the gospel and entering into a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in them before they even leave this place today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.